Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie Rudman, and I'm a member here at Redemption. This morning, our reading is from Esther, chapters 5, 9 through 7, 10. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad at heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Suresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave the orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gates. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So 
So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gates, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh all and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then, queen, then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king's, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has provided, prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for, for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. This is God's word for us today. That is easily the longest scripture reading we have ever done in the history of Redemption Church. Stephanie, you did a great job. Thank you. Well-deserved applause. <laughs> Well-deserved, and yet so good, this story. And so, if you would, join me as I pray. Father, go before us now as we look to your word. Use this time to shine a light on our lives, on our situation in the world we live in today. Encourage and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, in 2018, Anne Hathaway, the actress, was given a National Equality Award by the Human Rights Campaign for her work as an advocate within the LGBTQ plus community. And in her acceptance speech, she referred to really kind of a number of hot button issues as all part of a, quote, widely accepted myth. And one of them included this idea that, in, in her words, gayness orbits around straightness. This is a part of the myth. The, the clear implication here is that anyone who believes as the Bible has clearly taught for centuries that men and women were created differently on purpose for one another exclusively in the marriage relationship and, and that any other kind of sexual relationship is not only just different but even actually sinful, according to her, to Hathaway at least, what those people believe is a widely accepted myth. Then, after making this bold claim, uh, over a roaring applause, she continued by saying this, this myth is wrong, but this myth is too real for too many. And together, she says, we are not just going to question this myth, we are going to destroy it. Wow. I'm curious, as you hear a comment like that, how does it make you feel? For some, I imagine it may cause anxiety because these kinds of conversations make us very uncomfortable. Others may be a little irritated. I would even mention it because it just does seem like admittedly a pretty extreme position and a quote like that could easily be sort of like red meat to the base of people who largely already agree with our doctrines of gender and sexuality. It's hard to deny, I think, a comment like this is, is pretty overt opposition for anyone who, who would disagree. And for that reason, for some, I imagine, it may cause anger, frustration, maybe even a little fear, as if, see, this, this is the kind of thing we're up against these days, right? Uh, there are real people and some with lots of power and influence who actively oppose the beliefs that we cherish. They, they don't just disagree with these things. They want to destroy them. Haman said uh, of the Jews back in chapter 3, verse 8, their laws, they're just different, he said, and it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. It's in some ways, how the world sees us. So you can see it's, it is easy to feel, well, look, I'd love to stop talking about this stuff, gender and sexuality, but you just can't escape messages like this. It's at everywhere you go. It's in every store. It's in every coffee shop. And so you might think... We have to fight back in a way. Wherever you may fall on this continuum of responses today, we're going to consider what God has to say about situations like these and uh, what we can expect from him as we face them. In our passage today, we see a similarly proud and, and, and just outlandish threat to God's people, even to the extent of their being threatened by genocide. And we also see where these kinds of threats typically lead for those who make them. Last week, after risking her life to appear before the king unannounced, Esther was invited in to speak with him, and we saw she starts courageously and winsomely and patiently preparing to speak up at just the right moment, which she does in our passage, and to stand with God and his people. And as soon as Esther 
decides by faith to do this, we also see it's like the floodgates of heaven open. The whole story just starts to take a turn for the better. The first thing the king even says after holding out his golden scepter to her and letting her in is last week's passage. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom, which he repeats in today's passage. Right away, he guarantees his help to her before he even knows what kind of help it is that she needs. But instead of asking him then and there, Esther waits. She plans these two feasts for Haman and for the king. Now, feasts in general will become an important part of this story, particularly next week we'll cover that. But, but first, in our passage, it's as if all the pieces are now in place. The table has now been set for God to work Somehow, And as we read this, we can almost just get the sense, right? Let's sit back and let's just see how he is going to do it. We're going to walk through this story this morning in three parts. We are going to see Haman's pride. We are going to see God's providence. And we are going to see our protection, okay? And so first, I want us to point out and to see in this story Haman's pride, his grandiose longing for power. This man was so power hungry. And really the passage starts with him sort of walking out of that first feast feeling pretty good, right? Pretty good with himself. It says he went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But then in each detail, as as we kind of get a sense of why he was so joyful and glad of heart, I trust we're supposed to see Haman's just outlandish pride. And so let's just make a quick few observations about his hubris here. At first, again, he's very pleased as he leaves this feast, but then as soon as he sees Mordecai at the king's gate, refusing still to bow, he's filled with wrath. But he restrains himself. He makes his way home where he recounts to friends and to his wife all of the, quote, splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. In other words, guys, listen, I'm home. Sit down. Let me tell you how great I am, right? He even brags about Esther's approval and respect for him and this very exclusive access that he had to the king and queen. If you look with me at verse 12, then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, right? I'm an insider, you guys. You wouldn't believe it. Esther loves me. But then he tells this, these friends and, and his family here that none of this means anything. It's apparently a little dramatic as well. So long as he keeps seeing Mordecai at that king's gate. And so they give him some advice, and it's really interesting. They basically say, listen, might it be a good idea for you to construct a gallows? I don't know, maybe 50 cubits high, which in our measurements is is about 75 feet, just to put that in perspective. And in the morning, go tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. I think we're supposed to detect a note of presumption here. He's going to go tell the king exactly what the king needs to do. And then we read, this idea pleased Haman. Of course it did. And he had the gallows made. Now, this is the second gallows we've read of in this story. It is yet another ominous sign of just how vicious, proud, and absurd even that this man really was. Just just picture a 75-foot gallows to hang a single man. 
Okay. You, you, you could hang someone on a gallows that's like seven or eight feet tall. This is like 10 times larger than it needed to be. And it's all in homage to his grandiose pride. Clearly, at the root of Haman's folly was this massively overinflated sense of his own self-worth. This is what drove him in his opposition of God and his people. Haman was enamored with Haman. And really, he is in such a power of, of, power and in, of, of, of influence here, position of power and influence, sorry, that his power does really seem like something we ought to fear at this point in the story. So far, he has had very few obstacles, a pretty clear path even toward this plan of genocide against the Jews. It does not seem at this point like anyone was going to be getting in his way anytime soon. If anything, people are encouraging him, right? Maybe build the gallows. They're, they're following his orders to build it. But then something very important happens, something that changes everything, but it's not nearly so loud and grandiose as Haman's pride. If anything, at first glance, it seems fairly ordinary, even insignificant. The king has a restless night. He, he has a tough time sleeping. That's all. But in this one little detail, church, listen, we are meant to see God's providence. His quiet yet powerful control of all things. And this is meant to be said in contrast to Haman's grandiose pride. First, we're supposed to note the timing here. Haman's family tells him, in the morning, go tell the king to have Mordecai hanged, right? Then right away, it's like we cut to the next scene of the king sort of tossing and turning in his bed that night, just hours away from Haman's visit. Since he can't sleep, he has one of his servants bring him the book of Chronicles, and a chronicle basically is a, a king's royal history book. It's where he and his, his servants will document any noteworthy events that take place in a kingdom all for the sake of sort of record keeping. And as the king has this book read out loud to him, they just so happen to read this entry and this account of the time, which we read about earlier in our series of Mordecai saving the king by reporting a coup that was being planned by two of his servants. We read about this again back in chapter two. If you have your Bible, look with me back in chapter two. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Of chapter 2. It says, When this affair was investigated and found to be so, these men were both hanged on the gallows. Sound familiar? And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So that entry right there, recorded in chapter 2, is what was read to the king that night he struggled to sleep. And so the king asks his servants, what honor basically was given to Mordecai for doing this? And they tell him, uh, none. I mean, nothing, nothing was done. And then quite abruptly, notice, the king says in verse 4, hey, who's that in the court? D do you see this? He hears someone likely opening a door, maybe shuffling their feet. And in other words, it's morning. <laughs> it's already morning. Haman is there to tell him about this gallows that he has now constructed in order to hang Mordecai on. Do you see what the author is doing here? Every detail of this story is presented to us like a domino that falls one after another so this whole thing could be unraveled. So the king uh, tells his servants, let Haman in. But then before Haman can even say a word, 
Right away, the king asked him, listen, what should be done, Haman, to the man whom the king delights to honor? And here we see, yet again, Haman's pride, because, of course, he thinks the king is talking about honoring him. Look with me at the end of uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 6 there. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor? More than me, Right? So he basically narrates what he feels would be the ideal way for the king to honor him. This is so good, isn't it? Look with me at verse 7. Uh, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. He, do you see this? He just wants power. He wants to be the king. And let the robes of the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Right? Such a loud, such a grandiose affair, is it not? And then in verse 10, this entire book is flipped upside down. Everything starts to change. Then the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. To the man you just came here to tell me we should hang, go honor him in the way that you think you should be honored. But listen, Haman, in your own words, it should be one of the king's most noble officials who does this. So I want it to be you. <laughs> right? I want it to be you. And to put an exclamation on it all, he even says, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Nothing. Haman has to honor the very man he wanted to hang in the exact way that he, in his pride, wanted to be honored. This is one of just many reversals we see here. We'll cover in our next section. But first, I want to focus on, on what I think is the real point here. We need to see this and feel the weight of this church. Just consider all that has changed here as a result of this king's sleepless night. Just imagine. Because this king had a sleepless night, he just happened to read this book of Chronicles. Because he just happened to read that book of Chronicles, he happened to remember that Mordecai had helped him one time. Because he remembered Mordecai had helped him, he happened to ask what had been done about that. And because nothing had been done to honor him, he just happened to ask Haman this question first thing as soon as he shows up before he could even utter a word about the gallows he had built. No one in their right mind would ever expect this story to unfold in this way if it were just another story about a life in a pagan kingdom. But it is not just a story about life in a pagan kingdom. It is the story of God's providential care for his people, even in particularly dark times, even in exile. Now, this idea of providence, it's closely related to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, both have to do with God's complete and total power to control all things. But where sovereignty focuses on God's divine right 
and his even ability to control all things, providence instead more so focuses on the aim he's after in controlling all things. In this case, for instance, to care for his people, to seek their good and their welfare. The God of the Bible can sovereignly control a king's restless night's sleep, for example, but more than that, he can also providentially use that king's restless night's sleep to provide his people with something they desperately need. You see this? If this king had slept well, if this king had slept well, he would have had nothing to say to Haman when he showed up that morning and therefore had no reason to stop him from hanging Mordecai. He likely would have said yes to this proposal before Esther even had a chance to speak up and explain that she was a Jew as well. Do you see this, what the author's doing here? As we read this, it's like we are watching as the grandiose pride of Haman collides with the quiet providence of God. And the result for God's people, church, is protection, which is what we see next. Haman and Mordecai trade places. We are supposed to notice from this point on just how complete and how total the reversal actually is. Every bad thing that was supposed to be true of Mordecai and the Jews becomes true of Haman. Again, all because the king had a tough time sleeping. Uh, this story just keeps spiraling out of control for Haman. First, after he's humiliated by having to honor Mordecai in this way, Haman runs back to his family, it says, mourning with his head covered. And these same loved ones, who once told him, yeah, you know, go ahead. You, you, why don't you build this huge gallows? That seems like a great idea. Now they tell him, oh, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Like, thanks a lot, right? Like, it would have been great for you to give me that feedback before we had this gallows built, right? Way better. Everything is crumbling around Haman. And next, the king's eunuchs rush him off to the second feast, which he was just so excited to go to just a moment ago. And as they were eating and drinking, the king asked Esther again, what is your wish? And of course, as she said she would, Esther finally speaks up and she stands with God and his people. At the very same time, she both acknowledges that she is a Jew for the first time and also asks the king to grant her her life and the life of her people. And the king, apparently a little oblivious here, right, asks, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther connects the dots for him. She says, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman like the guy you gave your ring to like last week, right? So that he's to say that he could do all this. We'll leave that alone, king. But apparently the king here is so angry, he leaves the room. And when he comes back, he finds Haman still there, just, just falling all over Esther, just, just begging for his life. And he says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? <laughs> and I'm telling you, there's like, there is, I think, an element of comedy to this story. Just then, one of the king's servants pipes up, like seemingly out of nowhere, but it seems like mid-sentence. She says, moreover, it's like, who are you? Like, what, what, where have you been? Moreover, uh, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. It is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. In other words, you know, I guess they did uh, have this thing built. I don't know. Do you think we should use it? <laughs> and the king said... 
hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And then it says, the wrath of the king abated. God's people were finally safe. Friends, with all this in mind, again, just consider all that had changed because of that sleepless night. Just imagine. At the beginning of this story, Haman was joyful and glad of heart. By the end, he's mourning with his head covered. In the beginning of this story, Haman was furious that Mordecai refused to bow before him. By the end of it, he is kind of falling all over this Jewish woman, kind of asking for her mercy. At the beginning of the story, Haman was encouraged by his family to build the gallows. By the end, he is warned by his family, if you oppose the Jews, it's not going to end well. At the beginning of the story, Haman was bragging about Queen Esther's respect for him. By the end of it, he is scorned by Queen Esther in the presence of the king as a foe and an enemy. At the beginning of the story, he was proud about this invitation to an exclusive feast. By the end of it, he is assaulting the queen and long overstaying his welcome at the feast. At the beginning of this story, he was ready to walk right into the king's court and say, we have to hang Haman on this gallows I built. And by the end of it, he, in fact, himself is hanged on that very gallows. Just imagine all the time, the energy, the power that Haman had exerted to try and kill God's people. And then consider how with just one small little twist of fate, all of his plans came down on him. Church, by now, I hope the claim of this text is clear enough, is that the quiet providence of God is more powerful than the grandiose pride of our enemies. It's more powerful. It may seem like they have all the resources at their disposal. It may seem like they are the ones in power. They are the ones who can do whatever it is that they want to us. It may seem terrifying. It may seem bleak. It may seem as if there's little or no hope for us at all. But just wait, someone will have a sleepless night somewhere and everything will change. God will not let his people perish but he doesn't necessarily intervene in loud and grandiose ways either. He doesn't send a far greater, more powerful king with an, a host of angels, for example, to crush these Persians, as many Jews, I'm sure, would have loved for him to do. He often intervenes in very quiet ways that are no less powerful. For the original Jewish readers of this book, the good news here would have been that God used Esther and Mordecai to deliver his people so that they, of course, the readers, could go on and, and, and be born and, and live. They are the descendants of, of these very people. But for us as Christians, the good news of this book is far better. For us, the good news is that God protected and preserved the Jewish people so that our resurrected King Jesus could be born. Fully God and fully man, without sin, that he could live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death in order to providentially deliver a new covenant people once and for all, for all of eternity. Now, with that in mind, just imagine all that was at stake in the sleepless night of this king. Just imagine. 
Church, it is impossible to overstate just how much more powerful the quiet providence of our God is when compared to the grandiose pride of our enemies. It's not even close. It's not even close. In the end, we can be sure that those who know and trust in this God will endure. He will deliver and protect us. And those who oppose and resist this God will perish. Listen, we don't have to be loud about it. We don't have to gloat like Haman may have. We don't even have to know how it's going to work out. Maybe somebody will lose some sleep. Bing, bing, bing. Here we go. But as loud and grandiose as our proud enemies may seem, our quiet, covenant-keeping God is far greater. And so, I have just two takeaways that I want to consider this morning. Very simple. The first one is this. Don't fear the grandiose pride of our enemies. Don't fear it. We'll be fine. Uh, It helps to see, I think, that what is behind the harsh opposition of God and his people is really just pride. And frankly, a lot of it. Self-loving people making much of themselves. There there is something grandiose and self-exalting about making these bold and transgressive claims that fly in the face of a historic Christian worldview like Anne Hathaway, for instance, saying in her elegant gown that her and all of her friends are going to destroy a historic Christian view of gender and marriage. And everyone cheers. Ah, Right. Picture Haman gloating to his family about the pomp of his splendor while his heart raged against Mordecai and the Jewish people. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. But maybe you're not so concerned about Anne Hathaway and the human rights campaign. Maybe you are more concerned by the growing number of extreme far-right Christian nationalists who seem to question the legitimacy of people's salvation if they don't clearly align with their brand of conservative politics. I just spoke with a brother just last week uh, who felt he had to part ways with the church he pastored because he was a bit skeptical of people's prophecies that Donald Trump is America's savior. This is real. Now, praise God, it's not prevalent in our church. Grateful for God's mercy in that but it could easily pose a real threat to Christ's church and his people, particularly in the year ahead as we approach an election year. Here's the point. Wherever the grandiose threats may come from, it's tempting to see them and fret. It's tempting to see them and to think, oh boy, I mean, maybe we really are in trouble here. Maybe we're gonna be on the wrong side of this whole power struggle that's going on. I think this story is meant to encourage us. We're meant to read this and think, hmm, no. Maybe it's just, more power-hungry, self-exalting leaders and their groups that think more highly of themselves than of God and his people. The Bible is full of those, but they never win out in the end. Uh, They may make loud, audacious claims about our eminent destruction. Uh, They may even construct gallows to have people's hanged on if they stand in their way, which literally happened on January 6th. You can look that up. That's real. They may strut into the most elite rooms on earth, relishing the opportunity to make a fool of Christians like us to the delight and pleasure of their audience. But this passage should give us a powerful sense deep in our souls that it's cool. We'll be fine. We are going to be just fine. Church, we don't have to match the grandiose pomp of our enemies because we can rely on the far greater, more quiet providence 
of God, which is our final takeaway. Number two, have faith in the quiet providence of God. As we've been talking through this series, it is a complicated time for the church. We are not gaining influence by all accounts. It seems we are losing it. Uh, those who openly object to the doctrines we hold central are growing in number. They don't seem to be shrinking. It is no longer really a cultural advantage to be a Bible-believing Christian. In many settings and contexts, it's actually a liability. Uh, Christian friendships and even entire churches are being torn apart by the growing political divide in this nation. And so how are all these challenges we're facing going to be worked out for our good? And where should we look as God's people for comfort and deliverance in the midst of this kind of an exile? Well, in a sea of proud and grandiose threats, it is tempting to look for a proud and grandiose solution. To build an even bigger gallows, a hundred feet, right? To go and align yourself with a greater, more powerful king who's going to bash you, right? And look out for us. And in one sense, it's true, King Ahasuerus does advocate for God and his people here, but let's not make the mistake of assuming that he's to be the hero of this story. He is, he is certainly not. Just two chapters ago, he was perfectly willing to let Haman kill all of the Jews. So King Headache, as we've called him, is depicted here as a fairly aloof but very powerful man who's basically being dragged around as if on a leash by the sovereign God of Israel. God has appointed one of his very own chosen people to be his queen without him even knowing it. God saw to it he could not sleep that night that Haman came to have Mordecai hanged. God saw to it during that restless night that this entry of that incident was read, which led to the perfect, though seemingly accidental, reversal of everything that was standing against God and his people. Church, we don't need a loud and grandiose strategy to fight back against our enemies. We, we don't even need a grandiose display of God's very real and heavenly power. What we need is faith in his quiet providence. But how's he gonna, I don't know, probably not how we're expecting. And when are our enemies, your, your guess is just as good, as good as mine. But we can be sure whatever happens, the power of God's quiet providence will prevail. No amount of earthly pride or opposition will ever thwart the promises of this God. He will work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But, but I think part of having this faith is not just resigning ourselves to a kind of defeat and disillusionment, right? Oh, such a terrible, wicked world. Right? Everything's so corrupt. I guess we just have to endure it, right? Now listen, friends, God still works in this world, even in particularly dark and dangerous times. He is in control of all things, orchestrating even very complicated events of history for the sake of his glory and the good of his people, and he is moving all of history toward a great and glorious end, even today as he did long ago in the days of Esther. And someday, we will have a king whose power clearly eclipses any earthly power that would threaten us. 
when our resurrected King Jesus, born in the line of Esther and Mordecai, returns to reign. In the book of Revelation, we see a heavenly glimpse of him seated on a white horse, prepared to make war on the kingdoms of this world that have long opposed him and his people. And church, on that day, every proud, God-resistant, self-promoting tongue will be stopped. In fact, every knee will be made to bow and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will dwell with us and he will be our God and we will be his people forever. No more enemies, no more exile, and no more need for this kind of protection. So in the hope of that deliverance, would you just join me now as I pray? Father God, help us as you have called your people so many times to rest in your control of all things. Even when we can't see it, even when it seems this world will just go spinning on and on with no one there to lead and to guide it, with no one there to meet our every need and to comfort us and to deliver us from our trials, God, we pray that you would give us the kind of hope that you have given to Esther in this story, the kind of hope that would compel us on one hand to courageously stand with you and your people and on the other hand to do so trusting entirely in your quiet providence. You are good and a holy God. Fill this church with a joyful sense of faith in your power and control over all things, even as we face any number of trials. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.